Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, 2 Samuel, chapter 12. Well, as we continue with the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12 today, we find ourselves deep into that part of the Bible that causes us to look back to the God principle set down in the Torah, back to the history of Israel as a people, and but forward to the future Hebrew kings and then on to the Messiah, because it all connects. Thus, as you have noticed, and we're going to notice more and more, like in our lesson today, our study will often refer to past and future biblical events and people for the purpose of linking together other parts of the scriptures to whatever our our current study might be. Now, we left off last time by briefly looking at Psalm 32 that was written by David during this spiritually dark period of his life. And we're going to look at another psalm um, that sheds even more light on our present chapter in 2 Samuel, um, but probably not until next week. Um, First, let's go go up in our uh, beautiful balloon. All right, and float upward to where we can get a good panoramic view of the scriptural landscape that we hover over. Now some say at this point in David's life that God had departed from David. And others say that it was the king who had pulled away from God. I say that while David had certainly decided to harden himself against Jehovah's ways for a time, that he never renounced the Lord, nor probably even doubted the Lord. Rather, he did what most of us have done and will do at one time or another. We make a conscious moral choice to appease our own desires above all else and put God on the shelf for a while. Because it's clear that what we want is the furthest thing from the Lord's commandments and will. And as a result of King David's decisions and behavior, had the Lord departed from David? Perhaps, but I think only in a rather poetic sense. The Lord can't attach Himself to sin. He can't be in such proximity to it as to put His holiness into danger of defilement. And neither does he force his way into the life of someone who just doesn't want him there right now. The most I think I can say with some certainty about this issue is that the prophet Nathan coming to David with God's oracle, even though it was a a severe chastising oracle of divine retribution as well as forgiveness, is that this is proof of itself that Jehovah had not abandoned King David. But just, just as we can sense when we find ourselves in open rebellion against the Lord, 
there is also the reality that the relationship has been damaged and become distant. Who hasn't felt at times like our our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling or experienced a sensation of foreboding with an invisible, invisible but very real barrier between ourselves and the Lord's comforting presence. I think that the issue of whether or not the Lord has departed from David, as some commentators insist upon, versus David turning his back on God is almost as important is the one that shows us how to regain our standing before the Father by means of sincere confession and repentance. And of course, this is an example that that David demonstrates. I think the best example of a man who indeed at one time was in relationship with God, but then God removed himself, must be David's predecessor, King Saul. In fact, I have no doubts that the scriptural purpose in spending so much time in presenting Saul's life story and then immediately following it up with David's is to draw a stark contrast between the two. Listen to a few excerpts from 1 Samuel that describes God's relationship with Saul and then how it digressed and finally ended. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read these to you. This is from 1 Samuel 10, 17-21 and then 24. Samuel summoned the people to Adonai and Mitzpah. He said to the people of Israel, Here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up from Egypt. I rescued rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But today you have rejected your God who himself saves you from all your disasters and distress. You said to him, No, put a king over us. So now... Present yourselves before Adonai by your tribes and families. So Samuel had all the tribes come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And he uh, he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by families, and the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man Adonai has chosen? that there's no one like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! So without doubt, the Lord chose Saul. There was no mistake. But in time, Saul would pull away from God, and so God would take away the kingship he had given to him. 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, You did a foolish thing. You didn't observe the mitzvah, the commandments of Adonai, which he gave you. If you had, Adonai would have set up your kingship over Israel forever. But as it is, your kingship will not be established. Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart. 
And Adonai has appointed him to be prince over his people. Because you did not observe what Adonai ordered you to do. 1 Samuel 16.1 Adonai said to Samuel, How much longer are you going to go on grieving for Saul now that I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Beit Lachmi, the man from Bethlehem, because I have chosen myself a king from among his sons. The Lord replaced Saul with David. Therefore, since there can be but one anointed king of Israel, the Lord left Saul. But of course we find Saul openly defiant, trying to kill David. See, Saul is not merely committing bad behavior. He is trying to thwart and defeat God's will in a very similar way to what the evil one does. 1 Samuel 16.14 Now the spirit of Adonai had left Saul, and instead an evil spirit from Adonai would suddenly come over him. 1 Samuel 18, 9-12 From that day on, Saul viewed David with suspicion. The following day an evil spirit from God came powerfully over Saul so that he fell into a frenzy in the house. David was there playing his lyres on other occasions. This time Saul had a spear in his hand and he threw the spear thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David dodged out of the way twice. Saul became afraid of David because Adonai was with him but he had left Saul. In the era of the kings, it was always that the Lord provided a prophet for the king of Israel. And the prophet's purpose was to deliver the Lord's direct instructions to the king. So later we find that Saul's prophet, Samuel, retreated back to his home in Ramah and refused to have any more to do with this king. Because the Lord had no more oracles for Saul because the Lord had abandoned Saul. Thus we see in 2 Samuel 12 the first words of the first verse being Adonai sent Nathan, Nathan to David. This is firm evidence that the Lord had not abandoned David. In fact, in this chapter, perhaps as nowhere else, we see this dark, rather this stark distinction that the Lord draws between Saul and David. And we see the results of what occurs when that distinction is carried out to its logical and then eternal conclusion. Even though David had sinned grievously with adultery and murder, and from a, from a behavioral standpoint, he wasn't any better than Saul. Saul died in all of his unrighteousness, separated from God. 
Yet here we find these words of divine mercy and grace spoken through Natan to David. In in, uh, 2 Samuel 12.13, David said to Natan, I have sinned against Adonai. And Natan said to David, Adonai has taken away your sin. You will not die. What separated David from Saul and brought such a, a, a different end result? Trust. Trust. Saul believed in Yehovah, but he didn't trust in him. There is an overwhelmingly crucial difference between these two conditions. Belief is not trust. James 2, 18 and 19, But someone will say that you have faith and I have actions. Show me this faith of yours without the actions and I'll show you my faith by my actions. You know, you believe that God is one. Good for you. The demons believe that too. And the thought of it makes them shudder with fear. Belief in God is even for demons. Belief in God is a natural condition for any human or spirit being. Saul had belief, but trust is a whole other issue. And it is trust and not belief that saves one from destruction. It is the Psalms that highlights David's trust in God. Not simply an acknowledgement of of God's existence or even His authority. So as we get ready to move forward, be aware. Asking yourself or asking another person if they believe in God. How often do we hear that? Do you believe in God? It's a hollow, meaningless question. Mere belief in God or disbelief in God brings the same results. Eternal death. Because trust and not belief is the redemptive issue. This is not a matter of semantics. Saul, of course, believed in the God of Israel. David also believed in the God of Israel. Saul and David both committed the worst of sins. The only thing that separated the two was David's trust in the God of Israel, which then opened the door for God's grace upon him. See, grace is only available to those who trust The only difference between a saved believer and an unsaved person is trust and the grace that God gives you as a result. Because we are very likely to have similar behavior to someone who doesn't trust, at least at some point in our lives. Let's reread the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
page 345. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Page 345 in the Complete Jewish Bible. Adonai sent Natan to David, and he came and said to him, In a certain city there were two men, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had vast flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and reared. It had grown up with him and his children. It ate from his plate, drank from his cup, it lay on his chest. It was like a daughter to him. One day, a traveler visited this rich man, and instead of picking an animal from his own flock or herd to cook for this visitor, he took the poor man's lamb, and he cooked it for the man who had come to him. David exploded with anger against the man and he said to Natan as Adonai lives that man who did this deserves to die for doing such a thing he has to pay back four times the value of the lamb and also because he had no pity Natan said to David you are that man here is what Adonai the God of Israel says I anointed you king over Israel I rescued you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives to embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you a lot more. So why have you shown such contempt for the word of Adonai and done what I see as evil? You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife as your own wife. You put him to death with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you have shown contempt for me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own wife. Here is what Adonai says, I will generate evil against you out of your own household. I will take your wives before your very eyes and give them to your neighbor. He will go to bed with your wives and everyone will know about it. For you did it secretly. But I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. Yikes. After chapter 11 concluded it seemed as though King David was above the law adultery, murder who exactly had authority to punish the king of Israel according to the Torah law for these capital offenses he's committed civilly and practically speaking the only way this tended to happen to a king was through insurrection and rebellion Far too drastic to even consider, let alone be successful. But no one was in the mood for that. Because first, Israel was in a protracted and difficult war with a number of enemies. And second, because most of Israel preferred David, regardless of his questionable and even immoral behavior. But that doesn't mean that justice is averted. 
Yehovah is king over the king. Sin will be paid for. So while we see that the civil code of justice as prescribed in the law of Moses, the part that's carried out by human authority, won't be applied to David, divine justice will be. Because that's the part that's carried out by the Lord Himself. Natan is sent by Jehovah to confront David. But interestingly, Natan does not present his story that we just read as having come from the Lord as part of an oracle. In other words, Nathan doesn't say, King, I have a message from God for you. Rather, the king grants an audience to Nathan who has something personal that he wants to say to David. So the prophet presents David with the case of a wealthy and greedy man who takes advantage of a poor and powerless man. It's not presented as a parable or a story with a punchline, but rather it's presented as a real and actual matter for the king to judge and then for him to administer justice, something kings do regularly as part of their position. The story is essentially that a wealthy man who had vast flocks and herds of animals decides to entertain a guest who has suddenly shown up and part of the entertainment, of course, involves a festive meal. A poor man who was under the control of the rich man has a single lamb as his possession. So not wanting to take from his own limitless supply of lambs, In a heartless act, the rich man takes the poor man's one and only lamb and has it cooked as the meal for his guest. Now naturally, all of us who are reading the story act and feel as David did. And David impulsively sees the wrong in such a terrible thing and says that that rich man should die for his over-the-top callousness and harm done to that poor man. And that the rich man should provide restitution that's 400% greater than what he took. Then Nathan springs the trap. You're that man, David. Only beginning in verse 8 now does Nathan cease speaking to David from his own heart in his own words and he begins to recite God's oracle to David as a prophet typically does. Now sheep were often pets in that era in the same way that dogs and cats are in our our modern culture. So this story, understand, is not about this poor man's supply of meat being taken from him. Rather, this is a man and his family who have great emotional attachment to this lamb the same way one would have to their beloved family pet. Now, as we work our way through this story that is meant to be an analogy to what David did to Uriah, we have to be careful not to make the comparisons too technically literal at every detail. 
Okay? Even so, there are some choices of words that are used that help to make the connection in an unmistakable way. And one of these is in identifying the poor man's lamb as a small you. In Hebrew, a kipsakatan. Kipsah means you lamb, a female sheep. Katan means little in the sense of small because it's young. Like we would say a little child. All right, to get across the idea that this isn't an adolescent, but it's a child that's somewhat younger than that. The idea is to compare this young lamb to Bathsheba. And thus the tradition is that Bathsheba was not a uh, fully mature woman, but rather a younger girl, maybe 16, 17 years old. Okay? This is further validated when there is no mention in the scriptures of Bathsheba having any children. So she and Uriah were not likely married very long, maybe a year or two. The rich man's large herds of cattle and sheep are illustrative of David's enormous harem. The idea being that David had so many wives and concubines that it is incredulous to think that he could have been sexually bored by having relations with the same women because the variety was nearly unlimited. And therefore to be covetous of this poor man with his one single lamb that meant everything in the world to him is all the more wicked. Now, that the rich man should die was not a judicial order by David to go and fetch that imaginary rich man and execute him. The law does not allow a man to be executed because he stole another man's sheep and ate it. Rather, it was just an expression of shock and anger that anyone could be as pitiless to do such a thing. He just doesn't even deserve to live. The real issue here is not stealing. And the focal point is not the ewe lamb. It's all about the poor man who was victimized. And it's a story of the abuse of power. Of the powerful over the powerless. Look at verse 4. The Talmud has a very interesting and profound take on this passage, and that's why I want you to be looking at it. And and we do well to note it. The sages explain that the person who comes to visit that rich man as his guest, you'll notice, is referred to three times, and each time by a slightly different connotation. And the sages say that this guest or or wayfarer represents the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. Now follow me please, because this is really fascinating. 
First, you see, this guest is called a traveler or a wayfarer, a helek. Then he's called a visitor, an arach. And then finally, a man, an ish. Now remember now that the term ish, man, also has the sense to it of master of his domain. In the Hebrew male-dominated culture, men were always in charge of their household. And men were seen as the vehicle to carry out God's instruction in Genesis to have dominion over the earth. So when studying the Bible, we must not think of man and woman, Ish and Isha, strictly in the sense of male and female. See, for the modern Westerner, male and female are rather sterile scientific and medical terminology right, that, that doesn't carry any more than kind of basic biological characteristics in its intent. But inherent in the Hebrew words, ish and isha are the understood, foundational, God-ordained roles that each are to play throughout their lives. So the guest comes as a elek, and after staying for a while, it becomes an arach, and then finally assumes the role of an ish. The rabbis say that at first the evil inclination arrives as a wayfarer, a elek, who says he's not going to stay long, not exert any long-term influence on his gracious host. But once he's succeeded in causing this person to sin, it becomes a visitor, an arach, who stays for a while, causing trouble. Eventually it stays long enough to become the master, the ish. And the evil inclination now completely dominates his host. And thus is the insidious nature and method of our evil inclinations, our yetzer hara. Now I readily confess, I don't know for certain if this was indeed an underlying intent of this scripture passage or merely a great lesson that comes from allegory. But at the least, it is certainly an apropos description of how evil comes into us stealthily. And then we invite it to stay. You know why? Because we like it. And so it grows until it takes over and it controls every aspect of our lives as an unintended consequence. So to be clear, the guest is the evil inclination that overtook David. The little you is Bathsheba. David is the rich man, while Uriah is the poor and powerless man. Notice that nowhere in the story does the rich man kill the poor man. So that's why we mustn't go overboard in trying to make every last aspect of this story fit the precise series of events in the David Bathsheba Uriah story. 
And since this was a personal story told to David by Natan, not a direct oracle from God, no doubt if the prophet had concocted a story that had the powerful man killing the powerless man, David would have instantly figured out that this was about him. And so the end result of David's eventual self-incrimination and admission of guilt wouldn't have happened. Nathan cleverly led David right into it. Verse 5 has David ordering the restitution to the poor man of four times the value of the lamb. In other words, the rich man was to give the poor man four lambs in return for the one he took from, uh, took from him. The number four is not an arbitrary choice. Listen to Exodus 21.37. If someone steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he is to pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Once David has been allowed to finish his rant and he pronounces the awfulness of anyone who would do such a terrible thing, that man should die. And he orders the penalty of 400% restitution. Nathan springs that trap. You're the man. Suddenly David's world has been rocked. I can only imagine the fallen look on his face and the wheels that began to turn in his mind. You know, it was always going to take a lot to get this powerful man's attention. He had the world on a string. Many beautiful women, scores of children, rich, powerful, living in a glorious capital city. He was feared and he was respected. The first king in history to unite the twelve tribes of Jacob and then reign over a sovereign nation of Israel. Sometimes the Lord has to take extreme measures to rescue those that He loves. Verse 8 begins God's verdict upon David and the administration of his divine justice since there is no way that David is ever going to submit to the standard civil and human justice called for by the Torah law. The first thing God does is to remind David that he indeed does have a master even though he has been behaving as though he was untouchable. It is Jehovah, God of Israel, who has anointed David as king, not the people. It is Jehovah who rescued David from the previous king, Saul, not David's cleverness. It is Jehovah who gave David his master's house and gave him Judah and Israel to rule over. Let's dissect that for a minute. The master that's being referred to here is King Saul, David's former master. And his master's wives are referring to Saul's harem. Now, interestingly, there is no record of Saul having established a substantial collection of wives and concubines. However, we must remember that there was an interim king of sorts who ruled in between Saul and David, Ishbosheth. Very likely, Ishbosheth 
expanded whatever limited harem he had inherited from his father Saul and quickly expanded it since he had practically nothing else to do anyway because Abner really ran the kingdom and Ishbosheth was just a puppet. So from a practical standpoint, David inherited a harem that was started by Saul but had been passed down to Saul's son Ishbosheth and then multiplied before David received it. Saying that David had received his master's, Saul's, household is probably referring to Michal, uh, Saul's daughter. It certainly is not referring to a dwelling place and David didn't inherit Saul's family. And we also know that Saul's house can't be referring to Saul's estate because that was given to Mephibosheth after it had been run by a Gentile overseer, Ziva, for a number of years. And says the Lord, if this was not enough, he would give him more. What is the this that's being referred to? This wasn't enough. Everything in general or was it something in specific? The rabbis say, and I fully agree, that this, that since this entire episode revolves around the story of the rich man with all the flocks and the herds, the big harem, then the this was, was referring to the size of David's flocks. His harem and his family are better the number of women needed to gratify him. No matter. The essence of the statement is that David has been richly blessed by God's blessing and if more blessings were needed, God would have been the source. So for David to now go and help himself to another man's wife equated to contempt for the Lord's commandments and for the Lord's gifts to him. Before we discuss that contempt, please notice once again how the kingdom that David rules over is said to consist of Judah and Israel. I probably overdo it a tad in emphasizing it at every opportunity, but the reason is that this reality is the key to understanding some basic doctrinal issues of Christianity and Judaism, and especially for end times issues. And, and so much of this is ventured far off the reservation because the significance of Judah and Israel as separate entities has been set aside. Now please notice something else that pops up out of nowhere and frankly ought to shake us to our core. David wasn't satisfied with the gifts and blessings that the Lord had provided especially for him. He wanted what another man had, even a much poorer man. This problem may be one of the most prevalent and troublesome issues that individuals who form the community of Christ deal with. Who among us has not belittled the spiritual gifts that we have received, even in a kind of insincere humility. And instead, we've coveted 
the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given to somebody else. God gave you the important gift of being a gracious host, but you want to be a teacher. God gave you the important gift of administration, but you want to possess the gift of evangelism that your friend has. The Lord's given you the marvelous gift of exhortation to support and comfort those with the other gifts, but you want the gift of giving, meaning you want more money so that you can enjoy giving some more. No matter what gift we're given, we seem to either want more or we want another gift that somebody else has received. That's sin. In fact, this passage calls it outright contempt. Contempt for God. Scary. This contempt, perhaps even rejection, of the gifts that God has graciously provided to you is, from a spiritual standpoint, essentially sin that has sprung from the same well as David's wicked desire to possess another man's wife and was willing to do anything to have her. Something to ponder. Verse 9 has Adonai saying to David, The David murdered Uriah. The complete Jewish Bible has it right in using the word murder instead of the more standard translation of killed. Killed is a somewhat neutral term that merely explains that you ended the life of some creature under some set of circumstances. But the Hebrew word used here is arag and it pertains to the death of a human being and it, uh, here it pertains to the death of a human being and it refers to the killing that is intentional and is not appropriate and the lord lord says that david did the killing the idea of course is that the one who orders the killing is equally guilty as the one who did the killing thus while david probably had put it out of his mind or or rationalized it away that he did not personally apprehend blood guilt for Uriah's death. After all, it was the enemy that killed Uriah in battle. David hadn't laid a hand on him. The Lord here imputes blood guilt to David because David arranged it and he intended it. It's probably just now that David is starting to realize that his destiny is Sheol due to his arrogance and his criminal acts. And there's no escaping it. Because first, there is no sacrificial atonement for murder. And second, the condition of his afterlife is at stake. And that is not decided by men, but by Jehovah. David knew that he was now an eternally dead man walking. But now the other shoe drops. 
Verse 10 is the pronouncement of the first part of David's sentence. For his blood guilt, the sword will never leave David's house. Now since Uriah died by the sword, the Lord's going to reciprocate in kind. Thus, this part of the sentence is as payment and consequence for David's murder of Uriah. This is an application of a principle that we learned a long time ago in Torah study called Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye. Proportional punishment. Only the problem is the Lord can take this thing to a whole different level, a spiritual level, than can a man. Now let's go back to when David pronounced that sentence upon the rich man, that he had to compensate the poor man. How? By giving him four sheep in return for the one he stole from him. This exact punishment is going to be wrought upon David in time, but at a supernatural level that David could never have imagined. As a foretold retribution and payment for Uriah's death, four of David's children will die. Bathsheba's baby at God's hand, and then Amnon, Abishlom, and Adonia in violent deaths that the Lord essentially arranged through the hands of men. In fact, even David's own callous words that he had sent by messenger back to Joab when he got the good news of Uriah's death, those would be thrown back in his face. You recall that upon hearing that several Hebrew soldiers had to die in order for David to achieve Uriah's death, David said that Joab shouldn't feel so bad about this since after all, the sword devours in one way or another. Now this is going to apply to his own family. His treasured sons, even his firstborn son, are dying violent deaths in almost willy-nilly fashion. Those soldiers who died just so David could have Uriah eliminated, they had families who felt the devastation of those deaths. Uh, There was some comfort, because so far as they knew, it was by means of an honorable death in battle for the sake of their, their people and their land. They had no idea that that whole thing had been contrived by their own king. But each time David lost a son, he was all too aware of what was happening. His son's deaths were the consequences, even years later, for David's total disregard for those Israelite soldiers whose lives he saw as having no value, and for taking Uriah's life for no other reason than he wanted to steal the one thing of value that he had, his wife, Bathsheba. We'll continue this next time.